Hello, I'm Sumit Bose. Welcome to the Net Hero podcast. Now, the weather has been sweltering, or you could say it's been pretty wet. If you look around what's happening around the world, it's clear there's a lot of shift. From the floods in South Korea to the enormous heat waves that are hitting south of Italy and America as we speak. And of course, we've got the El Nino effect. Water stress is something that I think we probably don't think about as much here in this country because, let's face it, yes, we do get some hot summers, like last year was pretty hot. We had a bit of a heat wave in June and then we've had a lot of rain. And generally the winters are wet and mild and they're a bit kind of like that. But really, is water where our next big global struggle will be? Many people have written about it, you've seen articles about it, but actually the distress around water could affect us very, very significantly. In fact, it could be one of the biggest things that happens from climate change. So what do we do about it? Well, one of the things that people are looking at is how you can design ways to allow agriculture to continue when things are tricky, particularly when it comes to access to water. Now, the one thing we probably forget is that actually this planet is about, I think, 75% water, and it's seawater, saline water. So what can you do with that? How can you use that in agriculture? How can you use that to try and help us navigate things that are certain to come. Well, today I'm joined by Charlie Patton, founder of Seawater Greenhouse, who I think has an answer to that. Charlie, hello. Hello, Sumit. How are you doing? I'm very well, I'm very well. So in essence, to tell our audience, I think this is brilliant, by the way, what you've done. Explain what Seawater Greenhouse does. Well, Seawater Greenhouse is a process for growing crops and food and plants and trees and vegetation using seawater. We don't use seawater directly. We convert seawater into fresh water using two different techniques. One of them is reverse osmosis, yep. which is a bit like a cafetiere, where you sort of you pressurize the seawater through a membrane and you typically end up with half that water turned into fresh water, half of it turned into double salinity brine. Now we take that double salinity brine and then we evaporate it over evaporators, which are a little bit difficult to describe, but we call them Weetabix. <laughs> I like it already. Well, if, if you expand a block of Weetabix to sort of two metres high by a metre yeah. and sort of four inches thick kind of thing, they're honeycomb structures of cardboard, which are rather like sponges. And if you trickle water over the top of them and let the air blow through, yeah. then that water evaporates. And when that water evaporates, it does a few really magical things. It cools the air hugely, it raises the humidity, and it cleans the air. And salt doesn't evaporate, so you get increasingly concentrated saline solution on the wet side yeah. and this humid air on the cool side. Now, cool, humid air is important because it reduces plant transpiration it depends where you are, but somewhere between sort of twofold and tenfold. And in a sense, if you were a tomato, you could argue that high humidity and cool air is as valuable as fresh water. And yet we've got this funny idea that all oh, water is too valuable to waste and you mustn't waste it and it's too expensive. Yeah, yeah. But as you said in your introduction, we're not short of water. We're absolutely not short of water. In fact, we've got too much of it. Uh, we have a problem of sea level rise. Mm. So it's not fanciful to suggest that actually you can make a dent in sea level rise if you use that water to restore the lands that we have degraded 
well, in my lifetime. Yeah, you've been doing this for about 20 odd years, correct? Correct, yeah. So where would these greenhouses, so can you describe, it's always difficult on radio, but can you describe what this greenhouse looks like? Everyone knows what a greenhouse is. What does it look like? Imagine a Bedouin tent. Right. Kind of structure. So it's the, the greenhouse, it's not a hot house, it's a cool house. Okay. So the structure is very similar to a Bedouin tent. You have wooden poles uh, and steel cables holding it taut. And you might make it the size of a football pitch. Yep. And you cover it not with glass or plastic, but with net, with a fabric, to create a little bit of dappled shade. And you've already worked out where the prevailing wind is coming from. We use sort of various modeling techniques to sort of put met data in and simulate what if kind of scenarios. So there's a prevailing wind everywhere. Uh, sometimes there might be two prevailing winds, you know, one from the east, one from the west, depending on the season. And then we, on that wall that faces the prevailing wind, we have these evaporators in the same way that a farmer traditionally might plant a hedge or a windbreak of trees. Yes, yes. So that's another trick to reducing plant transpiration is to reduce the wind. Because the things that make plants transpire water, which they have to do in order to grow, but they only have to do a certain amount. And what we try to achieve is the optimum water use efficiency. In other words, how do you convert a litre of fresh water into fresh produce with the greatest economy? Yes. And so let me use a tomato again. A tomato, rather like a human being, will survive a range of temperatures up to 40 degrees. But like a human being, it won't be happy at 40 degrees <laughs> unless it has high humidity and low wind speed, in which case it will survive. Humans are the opposite. They need, they will survive 40 degrees only on condition that the humidity is low. Yes, you're right. Lots of humidity, where my family's from in Calcutta in the summers, oh my God, when, even in the winters a bit. But yeah, it's not nice. It's not pleasant, the humidity when it's high. It's not pleasant, but the plants prefer it yeah. to having a very dry heat because the dry heat is very desiccating. But are you making a bit like, you know, when you go into... Kew Gardens, the tropical house, or you go into one of the domes down at the Eden Center, you know, that kind of, you feel the moisture in the air. Is that what you're trying to create with it? Yes, exactly. That's those sort of conditions. Yeah, we one word we use is oasis. We create oasis conditions where the plants themselves are also helping other plants. So typically in, in sort of hot, arid, yep. say, North Africa, Morocco, those kind of places, you might have, yes. you might have date palms growing, which can survive very high temperatures and, in fact, enjoy high temperatures. But they create shade, cooling and humidity for, let's say, citrus, oranges, lemons growing in their shade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which in turn will provide shade and shelter for carrots and onions and lettucey things growing in the ground. So it's a, a multi-structured approach to, well, a, a nice way of describing it is forest gardening, where you optimise. A couple of questions. So where do you build these? I assume you have to build them near the coast do you because you've got to get the seawater to them somehow or are you doing a plant that is it like a desalination plant you grab the water and you're transporting it because then there's a bit of a carbon footprint in that as well essentially on a small scale near the coast we're working on three different projects at the moment far inland one is the Salton sea in america which is uh, 70 meters below sea level and it's 80 miles from the coast another one is the katara depression in egypt uh, which is also below sea level and is huge depression. And the most obvious one is the Dead Sea in Israel, but that's fraught with all sorts of political complexities and conflict, of course. 
But essentially, yes. I mean, there's no, the ideal location would be sort of less than 50 yeah. meters above sea level uh, because it doesn't matter how far inland you pump the water because it, it's the, the expensive bit is lifting water. So you prefer the site you're going to to be below sea level? So you've got gravity to assist. At or below sea level is good yeah. from an eco point of view. And there's quite a few places like that. So how long you've been, as I said, you've been going for, since 2000. So where is a site that you've used this and what has been the return in terms of how they've transformed their agriculture? Well, our biggest one to date, most impressive, I suppose, is Sundrop Farms in Australia. Right. It's arguably it's inland, but it isn't really because there's a, a thing called the Spencer Gulf, which gets narrower and narrower, and it comes up from South Australia to a place called Port Augusta, which is on the very edge of the outback. It's in South Australia. Right. There is no agriculture at all in the region because the summers are fiercely hot, even even by today's standards in Europe. But we, we would... In the summer, it would be 40 degrees at least every day. Uh, but it also goes down to zero in the winter. So it's quite a complicated set of conditions to meet. Anyway, we've got a 20 hectare greenhouse there, which is run entirely by sunlight and seawater. And it produces 17,000 tonnes of tomatoes a year, which meets around 15% of Australia's total demand for tomatoes just using sunlight and seawater. And, and where is this? Which part of Australia? Is it near? It's South Australia. The town is, the nearest town is called Port Augusta. Right. Um, it's, if you, it's sort of three hours north of Adelaide. I was going to say if it's near Adelaide or not. Yeah, okay. So the infrastructure needed, so the listeners can get an idea. I assume you're using some sort of, is the desalination like a normal desalination plant? Or is this, you you have a special technique, you, you, you build there? And then you pump the water. Is that how it works? Yes, there are different techniques. Uh, essentially, you, you either um, distill the water, you, you yeah. boil it and collect the steam, the way to describe it. Although it doesn't have to be boiled, it, it just has to evaporate it and condense. That's sometimes called humidification, dehumidification. The, the easiest, well, it depends on the conditions actually, but the technique that is growing in popularity is called reverse osmosis, where you use pressure which you get with a pump, to pump seawater through a membrane. And designing membranes has been a bit elusive up to now, but people are getting better and better at it. And it's a curious thing because everything in your body is, or, a, or an animal or a plant is based on membranes. Yeah. And it just sort of somehow happens magically. But actually synthesizing and creating membranes that hold salt back but let other nutrients through is quite a challenge. But that's a fast-growing field of activity, and it's now the it's the solution to go for. So you're producing about 15% of tomatoes that Australian... I mean, that's a ridiculous amount, enormous. Yes, it is. And in terms of the a kind of infrastructure layout, again, if we can visualise it, do you have the plant at the sea that you've built, and then you have pipes that go up to this place, or how have you done it in Australia? Yeah, it's only a, a few hundred metres from the coast. So there's a pipe going to the sea and there's a big tank to store the brine in. Yeah. And it's in Australia, it's actually a glass house because it's a cool house. It's a seawater greenhouse in the summer, but it's a hot house in the winter. Understood. Because it needs to trap the heat. So it's a combination of, of both. And there's an array of a solar array of uh, reflectors to produce heat. And that heat is used for three different things, depending on what you what the conditions are. You can use the heat to distill water. You can use the heat to produce electricity. And you can use the heat to heat the greenhouse itself. I mean, let's be honest. Well, I remember doing 
when I was at the BBC, I did a documentary. In fact, I found it the other day, <laughs> stuck in my mum's cupboard in 1998, talking about the El Nino, funny enough, and climate change. Now, you did this in 2000, you started. How many sites have you got at present? We've got the Australia site. There's a couple in the Middle East, in Oman, in UAE, and uh, one in Somaliland. Yeah. And we're currently working on the next project in Morocco. Are you thinking that you probably should have expanded a bit more? Is there been a resistance to it? Because it sounds like a flipping brilliant idea, dare I say. Well, I don't know if I need to tell you, but, you know, the (laughs) business as usual super tanker is hard to change. Of course. And the idea of seawater, greenhouse, agriculture, crops in the desert is just counterintuitive to most people. They just think, oh, that's going to be too expensive, too difficult. Yeah. Work, you're going to have problems with salinity. Desalination has earned itself a bad name. Oh, isn't that bad yeah, for yeah. the environment because of all the produces, all the energy it uses? Correct. Yeah, <laughs> you've got all, you've got the answers to all the questions I was going to give you. <laughs> yeah, there's 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 a huge range of negative yeah. aspects to it unless you dig in deep. And all of those problems are actually there are elegant solutions to all of them. You know, we're even now thinking that if the thing scales up as I believe it could and should, then it'll have a, a, a significant impact on conflict because wherever you have water shortage... You do, you're right. You have conflict. So it's not always associated, but when there isn't, when you've got uh, uh, water scarcity, uh, you've also got food yeah. scarcity, yeah. then you've got all these migration issues, you've got all this conflict. And if you look at a, a map of world water conflicts, you will find that they're absolutely centred on all the arid regions, on all the water poor regions of the planet. So we could be doing an awful lot more to help those kind of places grow their own food, be self-sufficient, draw down carbon at the same time, because you can't draw down carbon into biomass unless you've got water. I was going to say the whole point of this is, before I do that, there's one thing I need to ask. Does it matter what they grow in? Now, we've all seen the Martian where he uses his own poo to grow it in Martian style. Yes, yes, yes. But the idea of sand, when you look at sand, like you go to, you know, some of the places you've mentioned I've been to, right? So I've been to parts of the Middle East deserts and I've certainly been to parts of Australia. And there is a kind of ready, earthy clay in Australia. I know that sort of, I've seen it. But in the deserts, or I've not been, but I've been to the outback where I haven't been where, where, where your plant is. Is the soil not, just too dry. How do you actually get any nutrification of the soil to allow the plants to go? Because the water is one part, but it needs to to bed in, doesn't it, in some sort of substrate? Well, pretty much all arid regions like the Sahara, like Western Australia, like the Great Sandy Desert, were once completely covered in vegetation. Of course, yeah. And nobody knows quite why, but a combination of climate, humans and goats have reduced that vegetation to desertification and where you have desertification then you get less rainfall so there's a vicious cycle the water cycle in many parts of the world is broken through overgrazing over abstraction over pumping yemen is a fantastic example yemen is a country that used to be called felix arabia it was sort of it was um, fertile and happy in, in roman times it was the wow. the horticultural capital of the arabian peninsula and what has happened over the last 50, 70 years, is to increase production, farmers have been drilling wells. And when you go down a metre or two to even out the sort of summer winter rains, it doesn't really matter very much. But when you go down and draw draw out fossil water from 
100 meters or even a thousand meters in some uh, locations wow you reduce the entire water table which means that all the trees around your field will die and you will gradually increase uh, desertification and eventually re reach the the state of high salinity where nothing will grow at all so yemen is a country that has drained itself dry over the past 70 years through government sponsored irrigation and this idea that water is a you know infinite resource you just keep taking it out of the ground and there it is and now it's pretty much entirely dependent on aid food aid and of course there's a civil war going on but are you saying that if you had the chance, that dry desert soil or diet, sand, whatever the hell it is now, could return to being agricultural arable land. Yeah. If you somehow flicked a switch and you removed humans yeah. and you enabled it to rain, things would grow. Wherever you get rain, if you just wet a piece of ground anywhere in the Sahara or Australia. or But that's amazing because I would have thought, I mean, I've been to like the deserts of Arabia and I can't imagine, you know, you see a bit of rainfall now, obviously it happens, but I can't imagine that what looks like dry sand could suddenly be rejuvenated. And that's amazing. Well, plants are amazing things, and we'd rather overlook their incredible ability. We achieve an awful lot, but nobody's yet managed to create a blade of grass. <laughs> that's a good one. So complicated. We know a lot about photosynthesis and all the different pathways. Yes, yes. The more you know about it, the more complicated it gets. And you think, oh my goodness, oh, this is just too difficult. What's going on? But literally, if you just sprinkle a piece of yeah. a patch of desert with water every day, a grass or a something will grow. There will be seeds there. There's a place called uh, Death Valley uh, in America. Yes, I know. I've been there. My God. Yeah, hottest place in the world. I think it's broken its own record. It has broken its record. Yeah. When I was there, it was. 110 degrees it's now far more than that there was a few years ago there was a flash flood there and, yes. a, and a couple of weeks later the entire valley was covered in flowers that's incredible so that they're under there that's tucked away you know in a dormant state seeds or whatever exactly they're, they're everywhere they're everywhere the other thing i want to talk about before we end is that i mean first of all i think what you're doing is brilliant the story was something that i asked my research to look into because i just thought this was really really interesting particularly i think we're so blasé about water particularly where we are we don't think about it we just turn on the tap and it's there we don't realize the energy that goes into it we don't realize that as you said the way water distress can create chaos and mayhem. But there's something else which I think I'd like you to explain, that you believe there could be an element here of you could use this to, to create a way of mining at things like lithium and, and other sort of rare earth elements. Can you explain that? Uh, seawater contains the entire periodic table in some dilution. The main components are, of course, salt, sodium chloride, yep. and then magnesium chloride. But there's silver and gold and molybdenum and copper and zinc, and they're all in there in some dilution. And currently, the only one that is economic to extract is magnesium. So, so routinely, magnesium is, after sodium chloride has been removed from concentrated brine, the next one is magnesium. One of the reasons this has been difficult so far is that to evaporate water requires a huge amount of energy. Of course. In technical terms, if you don't mind, you need 700 kilowatt hours of heat to evaporate a ton of water. So it's, a, yeah. it's an energy intensive process. Mm -hmm. But if you hang the washing up on your washing line, it doesn't cost anything because the wind blows through and it does it for free and it slightly cools and humidifies the garden. Yeah. 
Yeah. So compare that, if you like, with a, a tumble dryer, you know, in terms of energy. Correct. Yeah. And there's no limit to the amount of water you can evaporate. So we evaporate it until it becomes concentrated brine, mm-hmm. which means that salt starts to precipitate out. And then we take it to a and put it in trays and we harvest the salt. And when you've taken the salt out, then what you're left with is a cocktail of as I say, the periodic table. Quite a few people are working on different methods of how do you separate out things like lithium and, you know, the valuable things. Yeah. But believe it or not, the very first battery ever made by Volta, I think it was, uh, in 1800, was a salt battery. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember something in chemistry about that. Yeah. You can do this at home. You know, you separate sort of uh, coins of copper and zinc with salty water yeah. and you get a voltage and it's sort of it hasn't been forgotten people have been working on salt batteries for a long time but china has just opened a factory for a sodium ion battery and in the uk there are researchers developing sodium batteries and sodium is only sort of next door to lithium on the periodic table of course, yeah and it has advantages and disadvantages the energy density is not as good as lithium but the life is better and you can also transport lithium uh, sodium batteries without a charge which makes them much safer to move around the place so there is a fantastic potential for using that the salt for all these other purposes what's the state of seawater greenhouse are you sort of getting funding what are you looking to expand you have sort of you know some good backers or or where are you no i would say we're trading water we we have this project in morocco i'm actually going there this afternoon which is a very large site we've got 300 hectares and we hope this will be the we anticipate this will be the demonstration site for achieving the net drawdown of carbon at lowest cost and greatest scalability, which is what we're striving to achieve. And at the same time, make the thing stand up on its own two feet and have commercial viability. What's your background? Are you a chemist? No, I um, went to art school. I, on my background was designing lighting, actually, theatre and television lighting. How the hell did you get into thinking about extracting seawater? For a- I, I knew about heat and light. I worked for... A, for a long time on motorized lights, remote control, theater and TV lighting, rock and roll, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I learned early on that in those days, lights were all incandescent, which meant they got very hot. Yeah. So a, a light in a, in a television studio is five kilowatts, maybe. Five kilowatts of heat. Yeah, I remember them. Redheads and blondes, as they were called in my day. <laughs> yes, yes. The multi-purpose. You might have a, a few hundred of them yeah. in the studio. So when you try and stick motors and electronics to you know, heaters, you have problems. So I learned early on about light, what light does, what different colours do, the difference between visible light, infrared, heat, how to shield, how to reflect, how to modify it, basically, to achieve what you wanted. And just by chance, I read an article in Lighting Equipment News at the time about the work Philips were doing on light for photosynthesis in the early days of making fluorescent tubes for horticulture. Yeah. Of course, predated LEDs. And very simply, it showed that plants are tend to be green. Nobody knows why plants are green, but they are green, generally speaking, because they reflect green light and absorb red light and blue light. Yes. And I thought, oh, yes. that's interesting. Yeah. I knew about thought, why don't we have a develop a filter which will let in the red light and the blue light and take away the heat and use that heat for something else, like evaporating seawater and turning it into fresh water. That was where the idea came from. So it's just turning the, you know, the light bulb the other way around. I think it's brilliant. Charlie, we've run out of time, but I wish you well with this. Uh, we'd like to keep tabs on what you're doing on Future Net Zero. I think it's brilliant. 
and I'll definitely publicize what you're doing because I just think it's one of those things that I think can really make a difference. Hopefully, it can be something that the, the wider industry, particularly at the world of agriculture, looks at. So thanks for your time and joining us on the Net Hero Podcast. Good, thank you, Sumit. You've been listening to the Net Hero Podcast with Sumit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to net zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.